You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. And welcome to today's episode of Justice is Served. I am your host, Chelsea Galicia. I am a workers' compensation freelance attorney, and I am joined by an extraordinary guest host who I am excited to have today. Please, everyone, welcome Shannon Myricks. She is a L.A. native, is it? yes, and went to Berkeley for undergrad, where she majored in um, mass uh Communication and African American Studies. She then followed that up with a fellowship at the LA Superior Court and then worked for three years um, for the Executive Office of the President, as in the President of the United States. So she was in DC working for the White House. Um, uh, doing research and information services for the president. And uh, now she's at UCLA Law School. Uh, what year? I'm a second year. Second year. Good year. And then uh, is looking to be a uh, political strategist or entertainment lawyer. So fabulous to have you here. I'm really uh, excited about uh, your thoughts on today's very colorful, colorful stories. Let's get started with the first one, Straight Out of Compton Sued. So this is a movie that I really liked so much so that I saw it twice. Did you like it? Same here. I got to see it a day early, went with a large group, and it was awesome. Lucky you. Well, somebody that saw it that was not so thrilled about it was Jerry Heller. Uh, in the movie, you'll remember, he is the manager that sort of discovers them early on and takes them on the the road to, to stardom. And, and it also shows some, oh, I don't know what we'll call it, shady uh, money dealings, uh, perhaps that he pressured the members of NWA to accept contracts that were not very fair or that he took money from the group. None of that was explicitly stated in the movie, but it mm -hmm. seemed to be alluded to. Uh, and Jerry Heller has now filed a complaint against everybody associated with the movie from NBC Universal uh, down to Dre, Ice Cube, the estate of Easy e uh, and, and and others. So there are a dozen complaints. Here they are. Therefore, defamation, trade libel, false light, misappropriation of likeness, intentional interference with a prospective economic advantage, negligent interference with a prospective economic advantage, breach of contract, breach of implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, breach of an oral contract, breach of implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, conversion, and copyright infringement. Some of those are, we won't even get into because they seem just too far of a stretch to even take seriously. But the crux of this is that the movie misrepresented him, and not just misrepresented him, but was disparaging to him. It... Uh, showed inaccuracies, uh, scenes that, you know, either didn't happen or didn't happen the way that they were portrayed, and that somehow caused him damage, that there was false uh, statements, essentially, about him that were published, and that these statements uh, have have harmed him. They've caused him damages. Um and he he's asking for quite a bit of money, and we'll, we'll get into that, but my my first question for you is, what did you think when you saw this case? Did you, at first, what was your, your gut, and is that the same as it was when you looked further into this? My first reaction was, another day, another Hollywood lawsuit, um, another Hollywood defamation lawsuit. Uh, usually, you know, I don't, I don't think right away, you know, uh, this is ridiculous. It'll be thrown out. My first thought is, okay, I kind of did, but maybe not now. 
there are a lot of claims here. Some, as you said, uh, more frivolous sounding than others. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, lawsuits don't go all the way to the end. They settle. So if we, we talk about who's going to win, it's whoever can get some money, you know, or whoever can walk away without spending any money. So in this case, you know, with lawsuits, you aim really high and you hope for a settlement. One, two million is, you know, not untypical. Uh, but, you know, generally thinking about exactly who this is, as I looked a little closer and looked at some of the allegations, I thought to myself, okay, thinking about what defamation requires, uh, one of the things is that you, you have to prove malice. Like, you have to prove that the person who, you know, put out this information, in this case the producers, Ice Cube, uh, Tamika Wright, the widow of E, you have to prove that they knew the truth or failed to investigate the truth. Right. So we've talked about this a lot um, on the show about these defamation stories and how they're different when it's just a private citizen who alleges defamation and how the standard is a little bit different for a public figure or celebrity who claims defamation. And this malice uh, part that you're talking about is only for people who are public figures. Yes. So it looks like one of the bigger issues will be whether Jerry Heller can be considered a public figure because I can see that in some ways he's more of a behind-the-scenes guy. He wasn't a member of NWA. He wasn't up there on stage performing. Uh, so it would be easier for him to prove defamation if he could uh, prove that he's just a private citizen. What do you think the chances are that he'll be able to be labeled a private citizen who has more of an expectation of privacy than a public figure? I think his chances are slim here. Uh, he is one of the known founders of Roofless Records, even in the 90s. A lot of people knew that. They knew that, you know, uh, Jerry Heller was the founder, co-founder with Eazy-E. Uh, even today, he's a well-known music manage manager in the industry. He even says that he's self-proclaimed. He's worked with a lot of major artists. Uh, he's he's published a book. Um, he published his memoir. Uh, only notable people can publish a mem memoir and expect some financial uh, income from it. So I think proving that he's just an ordinary private citizen will be his first uphill battle. Here. Yeah, I, I think so too, especially with the, the memoir. When you put out a memoir, it's because you've you know, done something generally that affects the, the public or was in the public eye. And uh, so that that's part of the, this, this case, actually, is that he's saying that parts of the movie were taken from his book. Uh, what's his complaint about that? So that's copyright infringement. He claims that his, you know, intellectual property has been misappropriated and used in the movie. Uh, the problem with that is that he says that his memoir is honest and true and correct. So if he expressed an honest and true, correct story of what happened, you know, in the time of NWA and Ruthless Records, and it ended up in a movie about NWA and Ruthless Records, then I don't think this is a copyright infringement. This is the, uh, this is what we have here is that people who've all experienced the same thing are now giving their own perspective on it through artistic mediums. So in his case, he wrote a book, uh, Ice Cube and others wrote a movie, wrote and produced a movie. Yeah, so this is like, uh, I, I can't write a story about the, this experience of sitting right here yeah. and, and taping this and and then be upset later if you do the same thing. We're like, you're, you're writing or making a movie about something that I wrote about, but you had this experience too. You're allowed to express that in any medium you want. You want to write a book about it. You want to make a movie. Mm -hmm. or, a do a play, whatever it is. So it's kind of, um, it's sort of, it's too bad. You, you can't copyright the truth. It's sort of like you can't copyright the news. So if, in fact, what his book said is true, then anybody who was there to experience it could write about it because that's what happened. Now, if he made something up and then they used that, then that would be his his imaginative, creative work that was therefore protected. But, yeah, that doesn't sound like it will um, go very far for him. He, he's the, the biggest problem that he has with this movie is that he says it has ruined his reputation. Mm -hmm. Did it? So he has he has to prove that it ruined his reputation. 
Um, that could take the form of, you know, maybe he had a client that he's now lost, or maybe he had endorsements, or uh, people in the music industry are now hesitant or discouraged from working with him because of the movie. But he has to prove that. He has to show that he lost. Yeah, so you can't just say, you know, I've, I've, I've been defamed, and now people don't like me as much. Uh, that's ruined my reputation. That that really doesn't do it for a court. You really have to show how it has affected your mm-hmm. business, how it interfered with a deal that you were about to make. It, and it can't be some, like, pie-in-the-sky hypothetical deal that maybe you could have gotten. It was something yeah. that it was, like, in the pipeline, like, probably going to happen. Uh, I, I'm not even sure if he is still in the business and taking on clients. But the biggest problem that I can see for his claim that this movie ruined his reputation is that a couple of years ago, LA Weekly uh, wrote an article. Uh, they listed, quote, 10 music managers who fucked over their clients. And he was number one. Uh, I didn't say anything about him suing LA Weekly. He probably couldn't because a list like this is completely uh, dependent on somebody's opinion unless there were facts in there that they used to come to that opinion that were not accurate. Why didn't Jerry sue LA Weekly? So uh, I don't see how just this movie by itself would have done this. I think that, you know, some article like this from from LA Weekly would also... uh, ruin your reputation if there was really something to, to ruin and, and, and allow uh, something to get in the way of deals that were, that were, were coming through. So I, I have a hard time seeing that. Now, he says there were damages, damages to the tune of $110 million. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, and it sounds insane to ask for that kind of money, and, and it is. It's a lot, and perhaps it is insane. But this movie has done phenomenally well at the box office. It has crossed the $200 million mark you know, worldwide. Uh, I was just reading about how this movie is the highest grossing uh, movie of a, an African-American director, F. F. Gary Gray. Gray. So congratulations to him. Yes. So this, this movie did make a lot of money. Maybe... He is owed $110 million. Uh, what are his calculations for this 110? How did he get there? So it's broken down into two things. We have compensatory damages, which is $35 million that he's asking for. And basically what he'll just have to prove is that, you know, the damage done has cost him $35 million. And that happens in multiple components. So the first is maybe he lost a contract that was worth $35 million. Possible. Um, if he can show that and prove that, that would be one way to establish those damages. The other, the other is the cost of defending against the defamation. So maybe he has to go on a worldwide tour proving to everyone he was a good and honest manager or his attorney fees or just any sort of counter campaign to uh, straight out of Compton. If he can prove the monetary value of those damages and the compensatory, that would be how he proves compensatory. The other is punitives. Now that's where the large amount is coming from. We have $75 million here, and that's kind of a way to kind of punish uh, the producers and NBC Universal for their actions and behaviors. Uh, punitives are pretty uncommon, um, especially really high amounts. You kind of want to, you know, shoot for the moon and land among the stars. Uh, but typically, uh, what ends up happening is that the punitives are greatly reduced. Uh, you'll mostly see really high punitive asking for large studios and corporations, people who have the money. And the point of punitives is to punish the defendant. So in order to punish a studio or a movie, in this case, that grossed over $2 million, you'd have to hit them pretty hard. So and $75 million would yeah. be pretty effective. And punitive is generally reserved for things that are just heinous, like perhaps a drug company knowingly um, prescribe, or or a doctor prescribing, or a drug company prescribing something or being, making something available on the market that had known risks uh, and allowing doctors to dispense them anyway. Something really, like, horrendously Mm -hmm. bad. Um, Not that I 
can imagine this is anywhere close to that. So not at all. I, I have a hard time seeing uh, how he'll get punitive damages. And the the thirty five million. I, I mean, I did not see in the pleadings, and I'm not sure if you saw where he outlined exactly what deals fell through that he was anticipating, and that is how he arrived at the thirty five million because. Those cannot be speculative, so they, there has to be some some real substance to them. You can't just say I would have, um, yes. and, and just make it pull it out of thin air, or mm-hmm. or say in the last you know ten years that's how much I made and that's how much I assume I'm going to make. There has to be some something that's showing that that is 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 likely. Uh, so, like I said before, that that. Lawsuit names everyone, NBC, Universal, Legendary, Pictures, F. Gary, Gray, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, and the estate of the late Eazy-E. Are any of them less worried than the others? Like, if, if all of them are responsible, if, if one of them is responsible, are all of them, or are there any who really have no culpability here? Well, this can definitely go both both ways. I'm sure most people know that in a major lawsuit, you bring everyone who even could possibly be responsible into court, and then from there, you sort it out. Uh, NBC Universal may be less culpable. It would depend on how much autonomy F. Gary Gray had in the movie. It would depend on who signed off on certain parts of the script. Uh, Ice Cube was one of the producers. Was he, Did he have the final say on the script? Did NBC Universal have the absolute final say on the film? So there's going to be some analysis of the contracts and facts you know, involved to see exactly who is responsible and for what here. So the parts in the movie that he didn't like, um, one is a scene in which he appears to be withholding uh, a check of $75,000 to, to Easy, uh, and he explains in a Rolling Stone article exactly what was going on there, that he asked the rest of the guys, do you want a lawyer? And they all said no. And So does that really matter if that incident went down the way it was exactly portrayed in the movie, or if Jerry's version of it is more correct. Is that what this will come down to? So Heller mentioned that this may have been a semantics issue with the scene, which still wouldn't rise to the level of a falsehood. But basically what he says is that Ice Cube is is saying that he withheld money from him, but that Ice Cube was required to sign a contract before he could have that $75,000 check and that Ice Cube refused to sign it. And Ice Cube said that he wanted his lawyer to look at the contract before he would sign it. Heller claims that he told him, yeah, sure, sure, let your attorney look at it. And uh, apparently at the time, Ice Cube was represented by a very well-known and prestigious attorney, so Heller said he was confident that everything would be resolved. Uh, Ice Cube still, he says Ice Cube still demanded his money. Now, the other side to this issue is that there are such things as oral contracts. There may have been an oral contract or understanding between Ice Cube and Heller or even Ice Cube and Eazy-E, which was that, you know, as soon as we get our gold record or as soon as we get our first advance, I want my percent paid to me. And in that case, if both parties say yes, and, you know, they then got the gold record, they got the advance, Ice Cube did not get his check, then in that case, then yeah, he withheld money from him. But there's two sides to this story, and we'll have to look a little further into the facts and what each side presents on that issue. And what about the contract itself? It seems in the movie that Jerry had them sign a bad deal. Was it a bad deal? You know, it depends on who you're asking. Um, bad deal, if Heller was Heller was getting 20% of everything the group made on top. And so, customarily, it's usually 10, 15%, right? Yes, that's typical. However, when a business manager takes on a client who doesn't have a lot of experience, has no name for themselves, they're taking on a greater liability. So usually what happens is they'll take 20%, at least in the first negotiation of their business contract together. And once the group builds enough momentum and renegotiates the contract with the manager, then they'll ask for less. But, you know, as we saw, anyone who saw Straight Outta Compton um, could recognize is that this was a 
largely unknown group, largely unconnected group. So Heller was taking on a lot of financial responsibility and that brand new groups don't make any money the first six months to a year, you know, of working together. And a lot of times managers spend a lot of money and time marketing the group and investing in the image of the group. And so that 20% compensation is to make up for that. And what, you know, most of the public, you know, thinks is a bad deal um, is when they see that a manager is getting as much as a member of the group, if not more. But that is not uncommon when the breakdown is 20%. So they got this advance check, and Heller gets 20% right off the top. What's left is divided between the group. So when that whole manager getting paid more than anything happens, it's usually in a group situation because then you have to divide what's left. And sometimes those individual amounts can equal more than or equal less than yeah. what the manager would get. Especially when all those expenses are taken out, which is similar to what we saw in like the group TLC and their problem mm-hmm. with their manager, Pebbles, who, you know, TLC was a really successful group, but yet had virtually some of the members zero money. Yeah. So it happens pretty, pretty frequently. Another part of the movie that Jerry did not appreciate was the the lobster brunch scene. And about it, he says, I don't eat lobster and I don't have brunch. So if the movie made up a scene of him eating a lobster brunch and Jerry Heller has never had lobster and never had a brunch, does that really matter? Is that going to entitle him to millions of dollars? Not exactly, except for that scene uh, paints him in an obviously negative light. We have Ice Cube at home struggling, or I think Dr. Dre struggling with a new baby at home, you know, wondering where his, they're wondering where their money is, and then they see Easy and Heller having a lobster brunch, looking like they're living an opulent life, and basically looking like, you know, he's a bad manager. The artists, the people who are doing all the legwork, are starving while he's sitting there feasting like a king. Uh, ultimately speaking, I don't know how much legal sufficient is in that claim. It, it to seems say, very desperate to me. I don't eat lobster. I, I mean, if I had a valid claim, I would not be talking about the lobster brunch and I don't have lobster and I don't have brunch because it really waters down any semblance of a valid complaint. Now, he's he's also saying that uh, he had a deal with um, Easy es widow uh, in a settlement uh, agreement that she would not say anything disparaging about him and that as a producer she has now disparaged him uh to me this looks like well is it disparaging is is something still disparaging if it's the truth and maybe uh the the truth that they showed was a lot of his negatives and left out most of or a lot of his positives although at the at the beginning they truly make him look like the hero who mm-hmm. takes a big risk when nobody else seemed willing to, who um, wanted to groom these guys into a success and who looked after them and who stood up for them when the police, you know, came to that studio the, or outside the studio that one day and, and had them all lay down face, you know, down. Uh, so it definitely shows him in some sort of hero capacity. Yeah. But then also there there's something clearly that by the end you know not everything was right so uh, do you, what do you make of this claim against the estate of easy and, and specifically his ex-wife what do you think is going to happen with that part of the claim that could get a little tricky um ultimately if tamika was telling the absolute truth then is this really a disparaging comment is this a breach of that contract right because with every of all of these claims, the, tr- the truth is a defense. So if they're able to prove that it was the truth, and you know the truth of something that happened 20 years ago might be difficult to prove unless several people have the same version of events. Um, they can show you know contracts, documents from back then to help show that that's actually what happened. I'd be interested to to see if. You know, in the movie, Tamika goes through the records and is the one who breaks it to E and says, Jerry has been doing something that is, is not right here, and that's when Easy goes to confront him. And Jerry says at that point, I, I, did I look out for myself? Did I cover my own back? Yes, I did. But 
I didn't do anything wrong and I'm he ne- he never he never says but I didn't do that or but I didn't steal but I didn't so the movie never explicitly says Jerry stole from them or exactly how he screwed them over it just makes it look like there was some funny dealings and it does make the guys look sort of naive and desperate and so that also may play a part in it but it that I could see the movie itself did not spell out Jerry was a bad evil guy who stole from the group did you get that from the movie not necessarily uh as far as a business manager is concerned, and we've seen this time and time again in many movies, the TLC biopic, uh, the, even the Jackson 5 movie, there were some, there's some scenes in which the manager does not look like a great guy, does not look like he has their best interests at heart, but that's a perspective thing. That's the biggest dispute between managers and talent, is that they feel like the manager is not doing enough for them, and that they're, they're getting the short end of the stick because of it. And the funny thing is that I saw in this Rolling Stone interview that Jerry gave is he doesn't try and make himself out to look like Mother Teresa. He says, I am what I am, but I am not a thief. So he is sort of, to me, saying there that he does do things that may not be the most fair, maybe the most ethical, but in his mind, he doesn't cross a, a line to be a thief but he's not saying that he's an angel and that's sort of what the movie made him look out to be not I mean sometimes a hero not quite an angel not total he didn't cause the demise of the group um, I don't think from what I saw in the movie and from what what we know but um, this is a fascinating story that will probably be settled out of court probably quietly we may never know how much it gets settled for um how how do you think this will turn out definitely a settlement i'm thinking between one and three million out of court undisclosed amount let's just make this go away kind of thing probably yeah i mean because you put this whole group together and have them each throw in you know half a million and it's better use of their time and milk and, and, and efforts, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the other part of this is that they didn't have his permission to use their likeness, but you don't have to have the permission to use the likeness of, of people. Like we talked about, you know, the image of the president is used all the time. You, we don't compensate the president every time. Yes. So somebody who's a public figure doesn't have to have um, permission to have their likeness. So there's just a lot of reasons that I agree with you that this is going to be a small amount uh, of a settlement I would say if any, but I think I doubt that anybody's going to be willing to take this to trial. So, yep. yeah, it will be uh, a small one. All right, so moving on to a, uh, a story that is based right here in L.A. The L.A., there's an ex-L.A. sheriff who was sentenced to eight years in prison for his role in a jail beating. So this is former Los Angeles County Sheriff uh, Deputy Sergeant Eric Gonzalez, who was convicted and uh, not facing, but was sentenced to uh, eight years uh, for the the beating of a jail visitor, uh, Carrillo is his name. And the interesting thing about this case is that this sergeant was not himself directly beating up this guy. And the other part that's interesting is that this guy was not somebody in the jail, but a visitor. Uh, And he got eight years. So there's so much to to dissect about this. First, the scene of the incident. What is your understanding of what happened that day? So the victim here had entered the jail, L.A. County lockup, to visit his brother, who had been arrested and detained. He, The victim came in with his girlfriend. They had cell phones. It is illegal in the state of California to bring a cell phone into the L.A. County Jail. Both were arrested and separated. Uh, while he was being detained, uh, officer said that he made a comment to the effect of, if I was not handcuffed, it would be a different story. 
Um, we don't know exactly what the tone of that comment was, but he was then moved to another room, thrown against the refrigerator, slammed onto the ground, beat up um, while simultaneously being pepper sprayed in the face. Yeah, so you can see um, the the image that we are, are showing. This is an L.A. Times image of the victim, Carrillo, uh, after the incident, um, showing him, I mean, bruised, bloodied, and, and really beat up. So this was like a group of officers that beat him up, and this uh, former sheriff was the supervisor watching this incident go down. So he did not himself participate physically in it, but watched it go down. Not only did he watch it go down, he then helped orchestrate a cover-up of the incident. So uh, things like charging this victim with assault to try and make it look like he was the one who had done wrong. Uh, What else was there that went into this? So he was charged with uh, battery of a custodial officer, trying to escape arrest, and um, one other thing, resisting arrest. Right. So, so very serious crimes. Right. But these were all ultimately dropped because there really was no validity to these. And then uh, a, a, a couple of the officers involved did report what happened. And the, the, the sergeant was terminated, uh, and he was convicted of uh, conspiracy uh, to deprive somebody of their constitutional rights, mm-hmm. um, civil rights, conspiracy to uh, violate constitutional rights, and falsification of records in the beating of Gabriel Carrillo. So for not the actual beating itself, but for, uh, well, I mean, I guess the deprivation of civil rights and constitutional rights kind of is about the beating, Mm -hmm. but the conspiracy part and falsification of records, that is stuff after to help cover it up. So that's mostly what uh, what he was tried and and convicted of. And he uh, tried to argue that this jail is a scary, serious place, and this is sort of, um, I don't think he quite used the word culture, but that was my sense of, in reading this, is that this is, you know, sort of the reality of what things are like behind bars, and uh, it was perhaps, I think his defense said, like a little bit too much, but this is reasonable in light of, of, of all the circumstances and the high-pressure situations that the officers are put in and they are asked to make very difficult decisions and, you know, very quickly. Did that seem to work? Did that lower the sentence? Not at all. I don't think the judge was buying it here. Uh, the prosecution introduced a lot of facts and information that shows that this was not a one-time isolated you know, this one officer overreacted. Uh, he had a 15 career, 15 year career, and in that time, many allegations surfaced of the same exact sort of behavior: falsifying records, uh, inmates being injured, uh, severely injured, and incidents that no one can completely, you know, explain. So I think the uh, judge was, you know, I think the judge completely agreed. Yes, working in a jail is very dangerous. I visited. L.A. County lockup. Um, I've seen pictures and documents of officers who have been uh, injured and mauled by inmates who've made shanks out of toothbrushes. It happens. But in this, I think the reason why the judge, another reason the judge was not buying it is because this was a visitor to the jail. This was not someone who, as far as they knew, and he probably wouldn't have been able to get a visitor's pass, had a violent record. Right. Or, um, you know, was someone who could harm anyone in that moment. Uh, he And he had a cell phone. It wasn't a weapon yes. or drugs or, or, or something highly illegal. He was carrying a, a cell phone. And so the, um, the argument by the uh, defense counsel was that he should be getting no more than 24 to 30 months in prison because he is a good man. But obviously you just said there's a series of these kinds of complaints against him, so that would go against that good man defense, who worked in a dangerous environment 
where it's difficult to always get it right. And then the defense attorney said that Carrillo provoked the beating by using insulting and threatening language. Now, this sort of comes up repeatedly in these beating stories. We talked last week about the young African-American student who was thrown uh, by a white police officer sort of across the classroom. And the the topic of discussion turned to whether uh, the young girl had said anything. Uh, she had shown disrespect. She was using a cell phone. She uh, was not obedient to the teacher and to the officer. And so that somehow makes it okay. Um, to me, the judge didn't also buy it either, that it doesn't really matter what he said, because to me, this didn't amount to a threatening language. So, yeah, it's insulting to hear, if I weren't cuff, I would, this would be different, I would be beating, whatever. Um, but to react to that is just straight ego. There's no real fear for your life, fear for the life of anybody around. So I don't see how it was very smart for the attorney to, to say that Carrillo had provoked the beating. Uh, the prosecutors did want more like 11 years, but got 11, I'm sorry, but got eight. So um, I don't know. There wasn't any factor to me that jumped out that made it obvious to me why the judge said eight versus 11. Did you see anything? The only thing I could potentially think of is, you know, this person is still an officer of the law. Um, officers who end up on the other side of the law tend not to fare very well in prison uh, because they're not very popular there. That's the only thing I can think of. Uh, the gentleman does have a, the officer involved does have a family. Uh, the defense attorney also asked that he have 60 days to organize his personal affairs. Uh, the judge said no to that, so that might be a factor. Maybe he considered his family. Um, and then I think, again, the judge considered and thought, and I think he still accepts that jail is a dangerous place. I just think that he thinks this incident and the officer's history of behavior um, is not a reason, you know, it's just, it's, definitely dispositive to, you know, that the use of force in that situation. Yeah, so the district judge that heard this case, um, Judge George King, told uh, Eric Gonzalez that he had abused his authority and corrupted the very system he was sworn to uphold. But uh, Eric Gonzalez is not alone in this corruption. In fact, there have been more than a dozen other officers who have been convicted of similar crimes. Uh, we've covered on the show, uh, by now, I can't even remember, maybe six months ago about uh, Tanaka, and we talked about whether Lee Baca was next. So this is a part of a larger problem, uh, sort of like a police gang. Um, have you heard about what goes on with this sort of police gang and what they're accused of, of doing and how it's being broken up, if it is? So one thing I remember specifically about this incident is that uh, one thing, the victim's brother was in custody, and when he was taken into custody, he sustained injuries that, you know, he kind of complained about, you know, to himself. Um, and after the incident happened, one of the officers involved in the beating of the victim here sent text messages to another officer saying, hey, we got this guy even better than his brother. So we have a, yeah, a gang of officers who are glorifying us uh, assaulting and beating uh, their victims and then bragging about it and documenting it. And luckily, you know, there is a code of silence among police officers, but in this particular situation, uh, some of the officers involved struck up deals with the prosecution to plead guilty to lesser crimes, and then they turned around and uh, reported what happened. And, like, a key fact in this case was uh, that he was handcuffed. The defense said that he was not handcuffed. Only one hand was restrained. The other hand was available because he was about to be fingerprinted. He used that hand to uh, assault and attack the other officers. So... Uh, luckily, in this case, we, for once, and are 
rarely we now have officers from that gang who've stepped forward. And so the code of, of silence is perhaps cracked, at least, if not completely broken down. This is costing the county a lot of money. Los Angeles County has paid Korea $1.2 million to drop a civil rights lawsuit. So the county is very incentivized to break this up because otherwise they're going to have these million-dollar payouts that are going to bankrupt the county. Um, I, I, I surely hope that this gets cleaned up sooner than later. Um, how do you think we're, we're the, the jails are doing at, at cleaning this up? I don't know if it's the jails that are doing something, but the fact that there's now a federal investigation by the FBI, I think that's a step in the right direction. We need people who we know have unclean hands, who are not involved or in cahoots with the L.A. County Jail. This seems like there's an institution there of officers getting together and um, attacking inmates that they think have a bad attitude. You know, it's not a crime to be disrespectful to an officer, and it's hard to pose a threat when you're handcuffed face down on the ground. We wouldn't promote being disrespectful to an officer, but if we have to be legally um, correct, it is right not... uh against the law to be disrespectful. There are some crimes of, like, disobeying a police officer's order, so mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to falsely empower people to completely disregard, <laughs> ignore um, police officers, and, and they shouldn't, because we should remember that the vast majority of them are are good people who are trying to do the job the best that they can and to uphold the safety, protection uh, of the citizens and the honor of their their work and law enforcement and that there are probably compared to the good officers a small amount of bad apples. But when those bad apples misbehave and be misbehave to this extent, I mean, it's something that needs our attention and certainly needs to be cleaned up. Uh, so I think it's great that we are talking about this because it keeps pressure on the entities that people are watching, people are talking about it, and so we need to keep this up. Uh, so now I would want to move on to our last case, which is a kind of interesting sort of defamation-ish case here. And this is against Mac Main and Birdman, who have been sued by a young man's family. Mac Main used album artwork that depicts a young man. Uh, really, it's like a high school teenage boy. And, and the name Ethan Couch next to it. So Mac Main has done a song called Ethan Couch. And what's really interesting here is um, that this the image that was used, the parents of this guy say, wait, that that's our son. That's not Ethan Couch. So we're now showing you um, not the greatest picture. We can't, we, I couldn't find a great like head on picture of him, but this is the real Ethan Couch, um, who does, I think, look pretty similar to the kid in the Certainly. in the picture. Now, there was a really good reason why you would not want to be confused for this guy. So in case you don't know the Ethan Couch story, a couple of years ago, back in 2013, he was 16 years old and got drunk. He was at a, two, a .24, which is three times the legal limit for an adult when he was driving a huge pickup truck barreling down the highway or I I think it was maybe a dark rural road Mm -hmm. in Texas he was going about 70 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone when he struck a disabled uh, vehicle that was on the side and killed four people there were people the, the person that was broken down and there were people that had come to provide aid to that person who was broken down, including a youth minister, who were killed. So Ethan Couch um, pled guilty to intoxication manslaughter and was given probation. The reason the judge gave him probation apparently was because um, he or uh, actually she, Jean, uh, Judge Jean Hudson Boyd, sentenced him to uh, a long-term inpatient facility, uh, a nice fancy one in, in, in Newport where there's like basketball courts and massages and horseback riding and all sorts of things like that, because she believed uh, a psychologist who testified, a psychologist who clearly had to have been paid for by the parents, 
that uh, that this young man was a victim, a victim of a disease called affluenza. This young man was so rich that he could not understand consequences. His father apparently had a company that grossed, I think I read upwards of like $15 million a year. And somehow that means that his parents did not teach him right from wrong and that because of his wealth, he never really knew or understood that there were consequences for actions because you could just buy your way out of any consequences or punishment. And for this reason, he could not be uh, held to account for drinking, driving, and killing people. And so this really, for good reason, has outraged uh, people. Um, What did you think of this Ethan Couch case when you heard it? So I read about the story and I was not completely surprised. Um, Anyone who's lived in Hollywood and ever picked up a gossip magazine knows what money can buy you in the legal system. So this would not be an exception. Uh, He, you know, I think that a better result would have been for them to start the healing process of his affluenza and sentence him to jail. to teach him that, you know, money can't buy you everything, I think the right thing to do would have been to sentence him like any other person in that situation would have been sentenced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there the, it just doesn't make any sense. And, of course, it raises the issue of if he had been um, a poor kid, an impoverished kid, you know, would there have been a defense called povertitis? Where due to poverty, parents not being around, maybe parents were at work, a parent in in, in jail, parent perhaps uh, having uh, drug problems that never sat the kid down and explained right and wrong. And, and therefore, a poor kid who commits a heinous crime like this can get 10 years probation too. Do you think that we should make things fair by coming up with some defense that equally protects poor kids. Is that the way to go? I think the use of expert testimony points to income inequality here. Um, if someone, if a, if a defendant wants to prove povertitis, his defense needs to hire an expert And this, is a, this is a term that we made up here in, in yeah. talking about yeah, this. This up. doesn't actually exist as a, as a term that I'm aware of. I'm not even sure if there is a term that is equivalent to affluenza, but on the other side. So this is what we have, have named it, I think, yeah. quite appropriately. Mm-hmm. But there isn't anything like this, and... Uh, I'd be fascinated if there was ever a, a, a case where somebody provided a, an expert to testify that due to a person's lack of resources, they were never taught the difference between right and wrong and therefore could never be held accountable for their actions. Yeah, Doesn't, public defenders can't afford that. Right. They don't have the money to hire expert medical witnesses. Yeah, not going to happen. So um, this... So for... So you would not, if you were not Ethan Couch, you would not want your picture next to the name Ethan Couch. So Certainly. What do you think this uh, the this kid who is claiming that's his image and he's not Ethan Couch? Um, how successful will he be in this lawsuit? I think this is going to be very difficult. This isn't an actual picture of a young boy. This on is kind the, of on the artwork. On the on the album artwork, this is kind of a cartoonish characterization of what appears to be a young Caucasian male. Um, we need to see a picture of the plaintiff's son in comparison to this image to see if this actually looks like him. The fact that it looks a lot like Ethan Couch. You know that that might help kind of even point away from the fact that this looks like their son because uh, Mac Man and Birdman could say, "Oh no, this is Ethan Couch. This is an artist rendering. This is a transformative piece of artwork um, that is kind of just a depiction of Ethan Couch." Right. We don't know the name of the um, boy whose picture the parents say this is because the parents have filed this claim on behalf of their their son. Uh, I would be curious to know if there was any cease and desist letter that was used 
before. Um, but I, I too, if my image was used and put next to Ethan Couch's name, that I, I would be really insulted. And I don't know, damages would be a little bit difficult to prove. He's a young boy. He has no career yet. He has no professional reputation at stake. Yeah, so that that would be tough to have a really powerful success story in in a situation like this. But what this this story was just so fascinating to me because of the Ethan Couch backstory and uh, about the difference between how Ethan Couch is looked at in the in this, the justice system and about how like the court of public opinion about the girl who was thrown across the classroom last week, you know, that that there is a, a different level of, you know, people who should show respect to, you know, uh, to uh, uh, authorities or, or to adults. And, well, Ethan Couch showed no respect to authority. To human to, life. Right, when he drank. And so it's just it's fascinating, this conversation, how this goes down when we're talking about um, a, a rich kid versus, you know, not a rich kid. I mean, this is... This is so, I mean, I'm like almost em- embarrassed. Like I would not want, I'm embarrassed to be a rich kid. I mean, that, that it, is, it is so preposterous that a rich kid doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And I, I really wonder how that expert psychologist sleeps at night for, for coming up uh, with this. I mean, I guess that's a talent and a charm to be able to convince a court that that's a, it's a valid thing. We want to know from you, how do we correct this affluenza disease that was invented? I mean, do we, do we need to uh, address the disease or do we need to eradicate it from our vocabulary because it actually does not exist? So please tweet us. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Definitely eradicate. I don't. I don't think this is a real thing. I think if you pay a medical professional enough money, you can get them to get on the stand and testify anything. This is not new to the legal system. We have the Twinkie defense. You know, we you have. You want the, to explain that? What, what that is? Basically, uh, a man was having a bad day. He wanted a Twinkie, or they were they were out of Twinkies at the store, so he murdered someone. He used it as a defense that he was caused grave emotional trauma uh, because he was deprived of Twinkies. So that became known as the Twinkie defense. And this is this surfaces in a number of ways, but uh, definitely affluenza should go away. No amount of money should ever absolve you from culpability. Or any crime. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we want to know your thoughts. Tweet us, me, at Chelsea Galicia, and at Shannon Myricks. Thank you so much for joining us, and we can't wait for you to come back next week and join us here on another episode of Justice is Served. Take care, everyone. Thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.